Uh, tonight we're going to be in Romans 7. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. We do it a little different. It's not going to be on the screen. So if you have a Bible, go to Romans 7. If you're on a device, uh, go ahead and pull that up, Romans 7. If you're on a device, I'm in the ESV if that helps you. Um, but uh, what I did want to do since we're kind of getting into Romans a little bit, let's recap a little bit about what's going on. So uh, what we see in, in Romans is we see some amazing things, especially in chapters 1 through 11. You know, Paul explains to us the, the plan of salvation. He talks about justification by faith and sanctification through the Holy Spirit, very important things. And he lays out this masterful argument that proceeds to prove the human race is surrounded by these three insurmountable walls. One is kind of the, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul talks, he doesn't necessarily use these words, but it's like this, it's the wall of universal guilt that we all have, right? Then there's, uh, in, in chapter 7, we'll talk about tonight, there's the wall of, of sinful tendencies and fleshly lust. And then there's the wall of um, election of God, of certain portion of, of the race to salvation and the divine reprobation of all others, he talks about in uh, chapter 9. But Paul, so, Paul also shows us in each one of these walls, God also provided a door or an escape. In the wall of universal guilt, we get justification by faith that you see in Romans 5.1. In the, the wall of sinful tendencies, we get regeneration. It's going to learn more about next month in, in Romans 8. And then in the, the wall of election, we get this universal opportunity that he talks about in Romans chapter 10. So Paul does this masterful job of laying out this argument of, of what's going on. And the first five chapters, we looked at the problem of bad deeds, right? That's what we, the, the first five chapters. And here's the hard part about reading a book like the book of Romans is it doesn't it doesn't stop at chapter six when the last you know like he's kind of it's kind of this one thought that later we come in and we put the chapters and verses you know how that works I, I hope uh, but the first five chapters we we looked at the problem of bad deeds that we were guilty before a holy God right we were guilty before a holy God and we heard God's saving solution which was that His Son Jesus Christ took the punishment for our bad deeds pretty simple. He paid our debt, and now our sins are completely covered in the eyes of God. He paid our debt, and our sins are completely covered in the eyes of God. That's important. We are before him in Christ as if we had never sinned. We are in Christ. For those of us that are in Christ, the believers in the room, this is called atonement. Pastor Brad used the word a second ago with communion. And we receive justification of our sins. Romans 3.24 talks about the justification we have of our sins. And in chapters 5 and 6, we looked at the problem of sin itself. Sin is a master in us. It's almost like if the outcome of a machine is always bad, is the machine broken? As unbelievers, our life was dominated by sin and therefore we needed a new life. So Christ opened up the way for us so that we could die and rise in a new life with him. We got the justification of life, which we talked about in Romans 5, 18. So that's all very fine and good and nice. But then yesterday, you sinned again and again and again. Right? And so did I, by the way. It's the paradox of a clean heart and dirty hands. And that's why Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8 next month. Are you doing chapter 8, Pastor Brad? He got the good one. Chapter 8 is the good one. He did that on purpose. I think he's planning it out. Uh, he's going to look like this brilliant pastor and preacher and all this stuff. So anyways, um, that's all good. I'm not bitter. 
Now, chapters 7 and 8 are very important for those of us that are in Christ as believers. This is, this is very important. Do any of you remember like your last day of high school? Remember your last day of high school and that anticipation for some of you that may have been a long time ago. And I don't know what they do now because I'm a little older, but remember the clock on the wall that was like a real clock with like the hands? <laughs> now they have like kids have their phone and maybe it's digital, I don't know. But remember like watching that son of a gun not hardly move all day, right? Or maybe like when you're at work and you got a two-week vacation coming up and it's like the slowest day ever, right? And you just count it down, right? So you're, you're, you're ready to have a little bit of freedom. You're ready to experience the freedom you know you should have. And, and the reason I mention that is that's one of the secret sauces of life in Christ is this idea of, of freedom. And, and what does it really mean to be free? The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans spends a lot of time talking about freedom that we get to receive from Jesus. And today we're going to see that we are totally free from the law. Amen? Let's get our Bibles out. Y'all ready to do work? We're going to do work tonight. And we'll start in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So right there, let's just stop. Paul's telling us who he's speaking to. He's speaking to those who know the law. He's speaking to believers and converted Jews who would have known the law. Verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, let's stop right there. This is not a lesson on marriage in this chapter. What he's doing is he's using the analogy of marriage to, to make the point of what it's like to be bound with something until it passes away and you're released from something. Does that make sense? It's not necessarily a lesson on marriage. So for those that have been remarried in the room, don't, don't let that stop you right there. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. It's Paul's right there. So when Paul says the word law, he sometimes means like the, the storyline or the message of the first five books of the Old Testament. In Hebrew, they call it the Torah. He also means in other times, he's referring to the hundreds of specific commands that God gave through Moses found in the Torah. All right, you with me? The second meaning is Paul's focus here. What was the purpose of all of those commands? Paul says the law was good, and it shows God's will for how Israel was to live. But if you read the storyline of the Torah, Israel broke all those commands. Did they not? The more laws Israel received, the more they replayed the sin of Adam and rebelled. I lost my spot. 
So even, so, so even when God gave his people specific moral rules to obey, and did not, it, it did not fix the problem of the sinful human heart that we all have. The more laws he gave, the more they just kept breaking them. So paradoxically, these rules made Israel even more guilty. God was giving them rules that were supposed to to free them, but the rules were making them more guilty because they kept breaking the rules. Are you tracking? But Paul says that paradox is the point. God's goal is to make it crystal clear that it's evil. It is evil that has hijacked the human heart. And the Torah, as good as it may have been, could do nothing about it. Let's keep going. Verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The fact, that the, the fact that the law forbids something makes that same thing desirable, does it not? Like that's, that's how sin seduces us as humans. The fact that it's forbidden is what we desire. In chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is led by the Holy Spirit to explain one of the most crucial aspects of the Christian life. Who you truly are and what you're not. It's about our identity. This is about our identity in Christ. Like a great physician, Paul uses a scalpel to separate two things which look similar, but in reality are completely opposite, completely different from each other. God uses the law as a reference point in this scripture. He's using the law as a reference point like a detective would. The law is like a line, right? Draw a line. When you do bad stuff, you cross the line. Make sense? When you transgress God, you cross the line. To commit sins is to transgress the line he draws in the sand. That's what we call sins in the plural. But sin without the S is something different. Sin without the S is what dominated us when we were without Christ. Dominated our lives. It's our tendency to want to cross the line because there is a line. Come on. Y'all do that too, right? To break rules because there is a rule that someone set that you don't want to submit to. That's our tendency. I know I'm not the only one there. I love setting a good rule for other people. But rules don't exist for me. You know what I mean? That's why I speed. That law is a suggestion for everyone else but me. So get out of the way. Please get out of the left lane. For all, Listen, please y'all get out of the left lane. Like especially, let me just get this off for a second. I've been holding this in for years and years. If you drive the speed limit or slower, please get out of the left lane. 
Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry. I just couldn't. Because uh, I lose my salvation sometimes. You know, I got to like re- redo this thing. Uh, just kidding about that because that's, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, <laughs> it sure is. Yeah, it sure is. Okay, uh, where was I? So we, we break rules because there are rules, right? And this is not just a problem with adults. Just watch kids. Tell, tell your kid not to eat the cake and walk away. They'll eat the cake, right? Kind of reminds us of somebody else, Adam, Eve in the garden. Don't eat this. They ate it anyways, right? It's very simple. We have an internal desire not to submit, not even to the only true and loving all-wise God. That is evil. That is sin. That selfish person brings about all the tragedies we see in this world, and it is ingrained in each one of us. Each one of us. And God is getting to the core here in this chapter, chapter 7. And the law is helping us to uncover what the sin is. So uh, it is not the law that is bad. If it's not the law that is bad, then there must be something else. There must be something bad in us. But I thought we were dead in Christ, risen as new creation. But we learned earlier in Romans, are we not? I'm dead in Christ. I'm a new creation in him. What is that? So the answer is, yes, I am that. But how can you know, how can you know that you are dead in Christ and are a new creation? This, 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 This is the thing here. When you cross the line, when you transgress God's will and you sin, Do you love it or do you hate it? It's not permission to sin, but we all sin. So when you got that text a little too late one night and went and saw old boy or old girl or whatever, because you were lonely, y'all laugh. These are real stories here. And not not mine, by all means. Just... I'm adding other people's sin stories in. I, just, I, I, I went online and looked some up. Uh, when you get that text, you sinned. You messed up. You went and did the thing, whatever you weren't supposed to do. Do you, lo- do you love that you did that the next day when you wake up and you still feel empty, or do you hate that? It's a good indicator. If you hate it, that proves your inner being is completely different than before. It's a new creation. There is no sin in your new identity. Your inner being is a new creation. There is no sin in your new creation, in your inner being. That's important. Let's keep reading. Where did I stop? 14? Oh, okay. 13? Did that which is good then bring death to me? He's just saying, is the law my enemy? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The the problem here, guys, isn't the law, but the sin that used the law to kill me is what he's saying. Problem isn't the law, it's the sin that used the law. 
We need to understand that death is separation from God. It is a moral, spiritual death. Physical death is a consequence. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So the problem must be surely me, right? Because the law is spiritual, it's not material, but I am not. I am carnal. I am, I am material, right? So uh, verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. You ever said that? On the way to sin. Lord, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I do not understand what I'm doing, and I wish I could stop, but here we are, right? Come on, right? Where was I at? 15, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That thing you hate is the sin. So I know what I'm supposed to do. I want to do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. This is kind of confusing. It's precisely these actions of the flesh that I don't understand is what Paul's saying. I don't do the good I want. Instead, I do the evil that, that I hate. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So, so kind of two conclusions here. First, if I do something I do not want to do, uh, I am in accordance with the law. Thus, my will is in tune with God's will. Let's go to 17. Uh, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me is what Paul said. So the second kind of conclusion is there is I am no longer the one sinning, but the sin that's in me is what's sinning. The sin that lives in me and competes for, my, competes for control of my body and my actions. So it's not like you have split personality. And it can seem that way. It's not a split personality with your old self and your new self. You have one identity, and it's perfect as Christ is because you are in Christ, and if it is his, li it is his life that is in you now. But there must be a problem somewhere in you. It's sin in your physical body, like a disease. That's the problem we have as believers. Sin in our physical body, like a, a, a disease. While your inner being is completely new, your body is not yet renewed. Your inner being has been completely renewed by Christ, but your body has not been. And this sin, like a physical disease, can influence you and the actions of your body. It influences the things you do. That's why you know what you should do, but you do it anyways. You do the bad stuff that you hate anyways because that sin that's there you can't get rid of influences what's, what's going on. So when you see yourself sinning, you might think your sin is who you truly are. This is where the enemy gets us. You see yourself sinning, you go home, look in the bathroom mirror, and you think, that's who I really am. Imposter syndrome sets in. The enemy starts talking. You're not really saved. You don't love Jesus. You had your hands up Sunday in worship, had the audacity to pray for somebody, but this is who you really are. But that is not you because you actually hate and condemn sin. So Paul looks at himself and he says, when I sin, it's not me anymore, but the sin that lives in me. I am perfect, but I have sin in my body. I'm responsible if I let sin take control of my body and actions, but when I sin, it's not truly me. That's powerful for believers. 
That should, that should excite us as believers. It takes some of the, the, the pressure off. Let's read a little more in the, in the chapter. We're on, we're, we're on 18, right? For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the, the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He points out here that the I, that which he's speaking about, that's not his true identity, though. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who, who do it, but sin that dwells in me. One more time he's saying it's not me who does these bad things, but the sin that lives in me. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, members of my body, my hands, my feet, my eyes, my mouth. My inner being delights in God's law, he says, though, so sin isn't there, but rather it's in my limbs. Verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, I thank God because I just realized where the problem lies. So then I myself serve the law of God and my mind, I'm sorry, with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And you can't stop in Romans 7 right there. You have to continue into Romans 8. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This means that I am in Christ Jesus and there is no condemnation for me. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And I was, I was kind of reading this and kind of, it's not that long of a chapter and it seems like he's saying the same thing over and over again, but I think he's trying to get his point across. And I think this is important for believers and, you know, I, I don't know what I want to happen tonight as far as, I feel like the Holy Spirit wants to do something in some of us tonight and that's why we're going to have a little bit of a time of just kind of reflection before we end tonight because I believe too many of us as believers, your whole life, all everyone did was force you to look at your sin and use your sin against you. It's the disciples in the, now I got to beat up on church a little bit. The disciples... You can't find anywhere in this book in the New Testament where the disciples gave an altar call the way we do altar calls in Western church. Where it's about how sinful you are and because you're sinful, raise your hand, say this prayer, you need a savior. The disciples pointed everyone to Jesus. If you need to be saved, you must have repentance. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. If you were here when I preached about Hosea and Gomer just a few weeks ago, I even talked about that. Hosea was talking about that in the Old Testament, everyone lived in fear of God, fear of wrath and judgment. 
And in his prophecy, after he bought his wife back, in his prophecy he said, there will come a day when there will be a messianic king, and in those days we will live in awe of God's goodness. When you focus on Jesus, it will become evident to you that you don't have what it takes to save yourself. I, as a preacher or a pastor, don't have to point out every sin in your life to convince you to raise your hand so I can put a number on a tally sheet that this many people got saved in my church today. That is not what the, the, the disciples didn't operate that way. When John the Baptist was baptizing people, getting ready for Jesus, John the Baptist is there with his people, and Jesus comes in. What does he say? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. When we behold and we focus, it becomes evident. We start to conform to the likeness of Christ when we put our focus on him all the time instead of focusing on our sin. I want to point something out. Jesus didn't... Flip to Isaiah. Flip to Isaiah chapter 6. Because this is, this is kind of interesting. I, I, heard, I heard a preacher preaching about Isaiah the other day I was listening to, and how it connects to this, I could not not share it. Isaiah talks about in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Isaiah, there's several woes that Isaiah is prophesying to the people about. In verse 6, we'll, we'll read it, Verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And he called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am unclean. I am a man with unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's the last woe Isaiah talks about. Woe is me, for I am unclean. And when I thought back to my years, I didn't grow up in church, but since I got saved to now, there was a whole lot of times where Christians get together and the focus is, woe are we, we are unclean. I don't believe that Jesus came to make us more effective at praying the prayer of Isaiah, woe is me, I am unclean. I don't believe that's why Jesus came, to make us more effective at that prayer. We have sensed in the Christian world that revival is a declaration of how unclean we are. There is a measure of recognizing your current status that is important for life transformation. But it, I don't know another word, so I use this one. But it is illegal to believe in faith in the finished work of Christ's victory and continue to be declaring after you have gone through the process of regeneration that you are still in a state of being seen as unclean. 
so we took this decree of Isaiah in the church and we made it real palatable for ourselves. And it's, we've become really good at using this decree. And, and when we get together and, and there's worship songs that use it, and we get together and we want to come together and we think that's what God wants to hear. But instead, the decree we should have is not, woe is me, I am unclean, is I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That is a decree that you and I should be, that should be declaring. Isaiah may have been right about Isaiah, but he is certainly not the one who is qualified to pronounce our current status now that we have not just been washed in the blood of Jesus, but actually we've been newly created into he designed and intended us to be. I find it funny how sensitive to the law Christians are. We always talk about Pharisees and the people that are in the law, but we are so sensitive and we tend to, we tend to skew towards it. Religion hates that. The enemy, the devil hates that. They want your focus to be on how unclean you are. And I like the Greek language when you really study the scripture. I like the Greek language because there are tenses there that we don't have in our English language. Like when you hear that you were washed in the blood of Jesus, it sounds past tense. You were washed. But it's not the past tense. It's in the perfect, current, continuing sense. Here's the analogy. You go to a creek bed. You find a rock that's been in the dirt and the mud. It's filthy. You walk up to a waterfall. You hold the rock under it. Washes it off. Now you go back, you put the rock in the same place, eventually that rock will be recontaminated with the same thing that originally contaminated it. But that is not what happens when we go through justification and are justified by Christ. We are in a position where the rock came out and is held under the waterfall and you're continually under that which is washing. That's what washed in the blood is. For Isaiah, even if he was right about himself being unclean, I want to, uh, let, me, let me read a little more just scripture of Isaiah though, because he declared, woe is me, I am unclean. But then in verse 6 it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me having his hand on a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So there was an altar burning, there was coals in it. The angel took the coal, flew up to Isaiah, touched the coal to his lips. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The angel takes the coal from the altar, touches his lips, and in the next statement, in the next statement, the Lord says, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. What happened in that touch? From woe is me, I am unclean, to the next statement being, here I am, send me. That touch did more than just deal with the fact that he was dirty. It dealt with his consciousness and his lack of self-confidence that came as a result of believing something that was no longer true about himself. And that's where I wanna leave us. We've even taken nice little cute words in the church today, words like process. 
And let me be clear, we all are in a state of process, like this process of sanctification, but we have taken self-inspection and called it process. And I want us to think back, though, to what we talked about with John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this is what I want to leave you with, and then we'll have a moment of reflection. I was not made to stare at myself. I was made to behold the Lamb. It's not permission to sin, but you will sin because it's in you. But what is your focus on? The, you're released from the law. You're a new creation in Christ. You have done all you are obligated to do and could do. But too many of us are looking at each other, pointing our sins out. You go home, can't even look at yourself in the mirror because of your past, and it floods our mind, and that is not what freedom in Christ is. I was not made to stare at myself. I was made to behold the Lamb. So that's what I leave you with. Romans is so good. It points out so much to us. I can't wait for eight next, next month. But let's just take a moment. Vince is there. He's playing. I want to invite anyone who wants to. Let's have an altar moment. Like, let's pray in his presence. And I hope, if anything, you shift your focus on self-inspection and counting yourself out or letting the world count you out. And just for a moment, even if in your seat, just behold the lamb. The, lamb, the perfect lamb of God. Pastor Brad set up nicely with communion. Without blood, there's no sacrifice. Without sacrifice, there's no atonement. We needed a perfect sacrifice, and we were not it, and the law certainly didn't accomplish it. So let's behold the lamb. That's what we were meant to do. So let's take some time, this moment of reflection. I guess the prayer team's here. We kind of asking. We will pray. If you need prayer, we'll pray for you. Uh, we would love to pray for you. Let's take this moment. Don't leave here today. Don't leave here tonight with the same mentality that you're dirty and unclean. And that's not the Christian life. It's not freedom in Christ. Behold the Lamb.